Hi, my name is Mark and welcome to The Active Listener, where we aim to listen, not just hear. We firmly believe that everyone has an interesting story to tell, if given the space to do so. So listening to what our guests have to say, you may learn something. I've got SJ with me today. He's going to be sharing some really interesting information. So before we move on, I'm going to hand over to you. Yeah, as mentioned, my name's SJ. I'm the CEO of All Call Signs, which is a veteran support organisation uh, in the UK, supporting veterans, uh, serving military personnel and their families uh, with issues wide ranging from mental ill health, accessing mental health services, all the way through to uh, social elements as well. So things like struggling with housing or substance abuse or building relationships in a new area, dealing with family and relationships and friendships and things like that as well. So a lot of veterans, when they leave the armed forces, quite often they're going back to an area where they haven't spent an incredible amount of time since they were 16, 17 years old. And it can be a bit like being born again and kind of re-entering the world. So we try and help make sure that they're integrated properly and that they can live a, a second half of a very meaningful life. What's the story behind All Call Signs as a name? Well, I wanted something that kind of made it aware that this was for everyone. So there's a lot of different services that are for Navy veterans or Army veterans or the RAF or for, you know, serving this or X that. I wanted to create a service that was inclusive of all of the armed forces community. And I also wanted something that gets everybody's attention as well. If you hear all call signs over the radio, it means everybody pay attention. It means this is for you. Essentially, it was a really short way to make sure everybody knew this is for you. It's inclusive and it's something that we need to pay attention to because it's around a subject that really matters. How did it all start and what's your background? Yeah, so uh, we started uh, in 2018. Uh, so my own background is I was in the 2nd Battalion, the Princess of Wales's Royal Regiment, which is an infantry battalion. I joined at 17 years old, uh, straight in as a nipper, served five years, got out at 22 after doing a little bit of extra time. You have to do four years, but anything before your 18th birthday, they don't count because you do that for the Queen. So I did up till uh, I was 22 and then I got out and kind of went into a few different jobs really. But over the course of a decade, I found myself really kind of leaning towards trying to support individuals with mental ill health. It was something that I myself had quite personal experiences with throughout my time in the armed forces, but also uh, after leaving as well. My children were all born premature. Uh, When my son was born, uh, he was two months early and contracted meningitis before he was actually even due to be born, before his birth date. He was very ill. Uh, we were told essentially to say goodbye to him. We were told it's, it's unlikely that he'd he'd pull through. Uh, by some miracle and goodwill and kind of whatever forces at play, he, he pulled through and made a full recovery. But that period of our life left its mark on me. It left its mark on my family. And I struggled a lot with guilt around that because um, my wife at the time, luckily, had the foresight to kind of take him down to the hospital and get him checked out. If she'd have done that even an hour later than she did, we'd be having a very different conversation. But she did it when she did it. My advice to her, I was at work, very busy in London in a kind of really kind of corporate job. My advice to her was he's probably tired, put him to bed. And it played on my mind for, still does, in fact, for, you know, years, the fact that if 
I'd have been the one at home with him and she'd have gone to work. Would I have done that? Would I have followed my own advice, put him to bed because he'd have died in his sleep? So I struggled for years with the guilt of that and to try and kind of get myself through that to the point where about a year after that happened, I came to the conclusion fairly logically, which is even harder because when you reach a conclusion logically, it's even harder to talk someone out of it. But I came to the conclusion that my family and my children would be safer and better off without me because they'd be safe from my wrong decisions. So I made the decision to end my life. I went through a period where every day when I walked to work, I had to cross this uh, bridge on my way into London. And I said, if I still feel as suicidal as I do walking into work on my way home, then I'm going to jump off that bridge. And that was the pact that I'd made to myself. I was like, I'm going to give it the day. I'm not going to make a split decision now, an impulsive decision now. But if I feel the same way going home as I do going out, I'm going to jump off that bridge. And for four days, I felt it, but I lied to myself and kind of said that I didn't feel like jumping. So I managed to get myself home safely. I said to myself on the fifth day that I can't lie to myself five days in a row. And I said, well, when I walk home tonight, I'm going to jump off that bridge. I was sat on the bridge for about an hour. If you've ever kind of held yourself in a stress position or you've had to kind of, you do, you know, when you do the invisible chair against the wall, then you've kind of held, held yourself in a stress position. My whole body was shaking like that. It was, you know, horrific. It was because it kind of, I, I feel like it knew that this was it. This was the, the final thing. Just as I was kind of psyching myself up, kind of get myself ready or saying, to myself, you know, you're even failing at this. You can't even kill yourself. You're useless. And my phone went. It was my mum. We hadn't spoken that day. She phoned me and she's like, where are you? And I just started crying. I was just like, I basically just unloaded on everything that was going on in my in my head, what I was feeling. And she just said, come home. And I remember then, I'm not a massive fan of kind of signs or you know the universe intervening and things like that but I remember going home and on the train home thinking to myself there has to be a better way to give back to ensure that my kids grow up in a better world to, to make sure that other people grow up in a better world than throwing yourself off a bridge I kind of had a, like a gear shift at that point and just went do you know what from this point on I'm just going to try and focus on what I can do to help other people to who may be in similar situations and at that point in time I hadn't really focused on the military element of it at all I hadn't really kind of decided it was going to be the veteran community that I directed this this passion to but that came later after uh, my friend took his life because I felt that things were lining up uh, things were starting to fall into place and I was starting to feel like here I am with the lived experience of mental ill health of of suicidal thoughts and feelings the background in the military the understanding of how that community works and how they struggle and the, the suffering they go through without really understanding it it was actually a lot of the military core values the kind of this the striving for perfection and for, for being strong and, and kind of behaving in a certain way and being very direct and sure in your decision making and things like that, that although not completely to blame for where my headspace got when I was suicidal, it certainly was a factor in, in that. So it just felt like those things pulled together and it created this environment where I could go, right, this is a better use of my time than kind of ending it on a bridge. As with a lot of people that have experience with suicidal thoughts will tell you, six months down that line, I looked back on that day and thought, you idiot, like, what were you possibly, how, how was that ever going to help anyone? 
you know, but your brain's a tricky thing and it, it plays tricks on you uh, and makes you feel a certain way. And those thoughts and the logic and the reasoning that got me there, even now I can see them. I just, my brain works in a different way to say, but why didn't you think this? Why didn't you intervene with that? Why didn't you talk to somebody else at that point? Why did you wait until it got that bad? So now it's quite often where if I'm sitting opposite someone that's having similar thoughts or have got themselves there, you just want to shake them and just go, oh my God, what, you know, don't do that. You know, stop thinking like that. There's, there's other ways to, to get through this. We said early days, if we could save one life, if we could um, intervene in one suicide, get one person home to their family, and then that would be a success. And I think to date we've we've intervened in over 240 suicidal cases. So really, really, really glad I didn't jump uh, for a lot of reasons. Thank you for being so honest and candid. And thank you again for the work that you're doing. You can rest assured that you are making a difference as are your colleagues. So thank you for sharing that, SJ. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and then in 2018, a, a friend that we'd served with went missing uh, and there were some uh, reports that he was not in a very good way, that he'd been struggling with his mental health. A couple of the lads that I'd served with actually had gone out to form part of a search party not far from where he lived. And they'd messaged me to see if I wanted to. My recollection of, of this man was that he was a very happy-go-lucky person. He was always the life and soul of the party, very popular, always surrounded by friends. And if I'm honest, at that point, I thought to myself, he's probably going to show up after been on a bender for a few days and he'll be fine. Um, you know, he'll show up. They, they always do. But um, unfortunately, in this case, that wasn't to be so. He was found past taking his own life not far from where he lived. And I started to kind of piece together the whys of that and what could have caused someone that, to my mind, was very life and soul of the party to essentially have changed in a relatively short amount of time to somebody that's ended their own life after suffering with their mental health. So I started looking into the various different support organizations and things that are available to veterans in the UK and trying to understand a little bit more about how that could have been allowed to happen, how somebody could have got that far down the line without there have been an intervention of some kind to, to try and save that person and to get them back on the right track and I discovered that there were sort of two or three areas really although the support available to veterans is quite wide-reaching and it's very good the NHS do a fantastic job and have veteran specific services as do a lot of the third sector organizations like Royal British Legion and SAFA to help for heroes the one the big ones that you have heard of as well as the smaller community groups as well you know the boots on the ground that have been set up by veterans themselves to support other veterans in their local communities. They were all really good, but one of the problems was that they weren't really talking to each other. So there was always these kind of gaps where people could fall through, where they were being uh, transferred from one person's care into another and weren't quite making it. So they were falling into these gaps. One of the other things was that it was taking too long to recognize when somebody was missing at risk of self-harm or suicide. Those two things, you had too long Firstly, identifying that person in the in the first instance and getting the help to them straight away. And then even when they were being brought into support organizations or putting their own hand up and saying, actually, I'm struggling, um, they weren't necessarily being passed to the right people in the right way and they were falling through the gaps. And the third was that it was just really 
misunderstood how serious of an issue this was and how likely veterans as a as a group of people are to go missing or self-harm or make an attempt on their own life. We came together with a view of uh, essentially trying to solve those three problems, but through the lens of peer support. So another thing you'll quite often hear from veterans is that they trust other veterans. They're more likely to take the advice of other veterans, but aren't particularly good at reaching out for support into a civilian organization. When I started to uh, research what I wanted this service to be, one of the things that I did was speak to people that had been through therapy and things like that before. And they all reported roughly the same thing back to us, which was, it was nice, it was useful. I took some reasonable tools and skills away from that session. But the therapist, I, I kept having to stop and explain military terms. I had I had to stop and explain kind of how a, an engagement works, how a contact works, um, what my role in it would be, how that fits into the wider team. So I spent more of the session essentially trying to explain the dynamics of war rather than actually concentrating on the traumas and the things that had happened that have been affecting me for however many years. So that in itself was an issue as well. So we knew that the key to that was involving veterans more in the creation of services and the uh, provision of support. So we set up a all call signs version one, if you like, way back in 2018, was a chat application that was available online where veterans who were struggling with their mental health could reach out and get support from other veterans who had had some training in listening and speaking to people and supporting individuals with mental ill health. And from there, we kind of went, right, okay, so what can we, how can we change what we have now? How can we keep growing that to solve all of those other issues that we'd identified through the research stages? And essentially, that's how All Call Signs grew to be what it is today. So for those of you not familiar or not sure what that is, so it's, it's a peer support network. So people can come through either by phone, text, through the website, it's the most common route. They'll come to us, we'll do a full-on assessment with that person, assessing their needs, not just based on what they've come forward with and what they're saying the problem is, but also looking at all of the metrics across 10 different areas of their lifestyle and their well-being to try and understand any areas where there's room for improvement, potential to engage with them in a meaningful way and kind of get them back onto a better path where they can go on and, uh, and live a full and happy life. Then we partner them with, um, previously it was peer, a peer support worker, more commonly now it's a listener. So it's a veteran that's trained in active listening and setting goals and reaching targets and understands the landscape of all of the different support organizations that are there and can help embed them into those organizations. Um, and then we stay with that person. So I guess where we're different is that we're not going, right, what you need is this, this and this, off you go we're taking that journey with the veteran. We're staying with them and saying, okay, how did you get on in your first session? What's working for you? What isn't? What changes could be made to ensure that the next session is better, the session after that is better? Are there any areas where things have improved since we've been working together? Are there, area, are there any areas that have declined since we've been working together that we can now potentially look to fill those gaps in? And that is everything from sort of housing, you know, are you currently housed? Is it rented? Do you own it? Are you going to have any problems paying your bills if your income changes in the next six months? Asking questions like this to understand not just is this person okay now, but are they being set up to be okay and, and go on and uh, and live a happy life? So we 
have been going down that route, if you like, since about 2019. We've helped somewhere in the region of three to 400 veterans um, through that system. And we also have an online platform where veterans can come on and, and, and register and then talk to other veterans as well, just on that platform around those specific things that they might be struggling with. We launched that fairly recently. So I think it's two, three months ago we launched that. There's over 800 people registered on that as well that are going on and being trained in in different things that they can do from understanding trauma to um, listening techniques to breathing to managing stress all those types of things um, and we're continuing to add content to that website and add uh, useful resources to that website with the view that as we move into the next version of all call signs if you like we're looking to create this social network for veterans that focuses on well-being focuses on moving you forward in your life not just a place to text your mates and upload photos of what you got up to at the weekend but to actually learn skills that can move you forwards and help you to live a, a meaningful life it sounds very much like a, a community based upon shared experience so that people are able to use the same kind of language and understand and relate to one another and you're covering all manner of things but particularly from a well-being point of view uh, mental health that sort of thing are there professionals involved that are from a military background? They have that training and insight rather than we're just getting around with some mates that have been through the same sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't refer to ourselves as a mental health service in our own right. We're more of a care coordination specialist. So what we're doing is connecting the dots between the different organisations that do have those mental health professionals. A chat amongst friends is certainly useful. Being able to get stuff off your chest is certainly useful. And having those people trained in recognising risks around suicide and self-harm and things like that um, has huge advantages as well. But there are people that are further along that process and are in more need of very structured therapies, talking therapies, maybe access to medication, antidepressants and that kind of thing as well. So we do make the referrals into specific veteran NHS services that have been set up for this. Now, as I'm sure you'll understand, the, the issue with veterans is that you could fit the entire armed forces as it exists right now into Twickenham Stadium, you know. It's not a huge armed forces and it's the smallest it's been for, you know, a, a very long time. There are 10, 15,000 veterans coming out of that each year, but it's still a very small group. We're talking about sort of two and a half million people in a country, way bigger than that. In the healthcare services, there are not enough veterans working in those healthcare services to man a veterans healthcare service fully by veterans. So the more important thing for us to do is to make sure that even the ones within those teams that aren't veterans, make sure that veterans are represented within that team, but also make sure that the ones that are coming from a civilian background have a really deep understanding of the different lifestyle that veterans go through, understand the different problems that they face, understand the different traumas that they are likely to have been exposed to, so that when veterans do come through that service, they're not having to start from square one. There is a, a shared understanding of everybody within that service. So 
one of the things that we worked with recently with Solar NHS was to create a trauma-informed veteran aware package, which is uh, essentially a piece of training that can be given to anyone working within the NHS to understand the veteran experience better, to understand how going from potentially not the best childhood into active service, being exposed to the traumas of war, um, and service and then coming out of the other end and what that looks like and how that person is likely to present quite slightly differently. Because we had veterans that were coming to us and saying things like, you have to be registered with your GP, for example, to get into the veterans mental health service. And they were saying, I'm not registered with a GP. It's like, well, why not? Well, because when I went down to, to register, I had an argument with a woman on the front desk and they told me I'm not allowed in there anymore. What was the argument about? Well, I came in, I was on time. They didn't see me for 45 minutes. Now, a civilian with an understanding of how GPs work and kind of the state of the, some elements of the um, National Health Service will understand 45 minutes isn't uh, an uncommon way. It's quite, it happens. Um, it's not ideal. To a veteran that holds timings in really high regard and really needs to know when something's happening and you know when it's going to be executed and have it talked through step by step so that they understand the process that whole experience is really lacking for them some of that was about teaching gp surgeries and hospitals and a and e staff and mental health nurses working in crisis teams and things like that to understand what's important to a veteran what their triggers are likely to be what small adjustments you could make to your day-to-day -day, the way that you work to accommodate that person's needs and that's essentially what the trauma-informed veteran aware training package is it's a way of helping those without experience in service to understand you know what it's like to be a veteran and what those traumas are so there's two sides of it yeah there's making sure that there are veterans and they are being represented within uh, civilian mental health services but also making sure the ones that don't necessarily come from a military background at least have enough understanding of what it means to be a veteran to to be able to offer effective care it sounds like to me there's something about cultural awareness isn't there different cultures almost colliding and understanding having that mindset of understanding where people are coming from that's clearly has a, a huge impact and also from what you're saying too it isn't necessary that everyone needs that extensive mental health support or indeed if they did they probably wouldn't even want to go that way so there's a power in terms of talking to your mates as a, as a gateway those guys yeah. have an idea then they can signpost the person to the right place but there's a there's some power i would have thought having that gateway of just we're mates yeah absolutely and i think it was um, we discovered early on that kind of admission is permission within the veteran community. So when one person kind of comes forward and says, actually, I've struggled with my mental health, this is what I did, it gives other people the chance to go, okay, well, if this person's brave enough to kind of put their head above the parapet and say, yeah, I'm struggling, maybe I can too, they're more likely to engage in a service. Equally, the other side of that is dangerous in that if a veteran has a negative experience of a service and then goes to his other veteran friends and says, that was rubbish, it didn't work for me, they're less likely to engage in that service because they're going to go, well, I've got a friend who had a negative experience. So very conscious of peer review and, uh, and peer experience within what we do to try and make sure that people are encouraged into services rather than turned away from them. The other part of that is feeling like a service isn't for you so there's a lot of 
work that's gone into NHS specifically around other different micro communities and subcultures within the UK, things like the LGBTQ community, the BAME community, uh, and things like this to try and make sure that people feel represented by their national health services. So they need to have a national reach, but equally they need to cater for the more diverse subgroups of, of the UK population, of which we would you know, strongly argue the veteran community is one of them. We're talking about two and a half plus million people that have a very different lifestyle, have experienced a, a very different upbringing, a very different life experience to the majority of the British public. And it's important that they are represented in not just veteran-specific services, but in national health services as well. There's things around the, the veteran culture as well that makes them less likely to engage in the first place uh, with mental health services. As much as the armed forces is diversifying, it's still 99% white men. If you were going to paint a picture of an armed forces veteran, it would be you know, a man in his 50s with his medals on, um, slight beer belly maybe, drinking down the Royal British Legion. There's a picture that's painted in your mind of, of what that veteran is. Unfortunately, one of the things that comes along with that is that they're much less likely to reach out for support with mental health. They have an alpha mentality where they believe that they should be strong enough to withstand this. They should be able to do it on their own. They shouldn't need help. The idea that maybe reaching out for help is is weak or means that there's something wrong with them or is, or is a, an admission of defeat years after experiencing the trauma in the first place. So it's about breaking down those barriers and making sure that people know there's, there's nothing wrong with putting your hand up and saying, I'm not okay. And actually, the earlier people do it, A, the easier it is to treat, B, the less strain it puts on the health service. The end that puts, costs the most money, puts the most strain, is when people are in crisis, when people are already suicidal, already at the end of their rope and can't do anything about it. That's the end that's costly. That's ambulances, that's search and rescue, that's 24-hour monitoring, that's secure units. That's all of these things. Whereas if somebody reaches out when they're at a two or a three um, and says, actually, right now, I can feel myself changing. I, I, I understand that I'm sad more days than I'm happy. I'm starting to notice changes in my mood is affecting my relationships. If you can reach out at that point, you're doing yourself a favor, you're doing your family a favor, you're doing the health service a favor because there's so much more options available to try and get you back onto an even keel at that point than there is on the other end of the scale. So our advice has always been if you're having more bad days than good, that's the time to reach out. Don't wait until you're in crisis. Don't wait until you're suicidal. Don't wait until you're actively self-harming. Reach out early. Get to it early because everybody benefits from you doing that and making that call. Are you as an organisation involved in any way with currently serving members of the armed services? Because I'm thinking from what you just said there, there may be an opportunity to have an impact with people who are now serving so yeah. that it influences that culture. I know the armed services are trying to change culture around that, but I'm just wondering if there's some kind of inputs that you and your colleagues could or do have. Yeah, there is. So firstly, the service or call signs is available to military personnel serving and veterans. We're not saying you have to wait until you leave service to reach out and get support from us. If you're serving today, um, and you're having a bad day today, you could give us a call and we'd we'd speak to you and we'd do everything that we can uh, to support you. The bit around service provisions and linking people in with other organisations and health services becomes a bit harder when you're dealing with people behind the wire. 
because they have their own mental health teams within the armed forces, within the MOD. And a lot of the larger organisations won't work with you whilst you're still serving. You do need to either be a veteran or be within three months of your leave date. But we're trying every day to try and um, push that further and further that way with the understanding that actually if you can engage someone really early doors in a conversation around their mental health, you can get to them before it becomes an issue. So we're always trying to work to make other services engage more with military personnel and to connect those dots between behind the wire mental health services and those that serve the veteran community because they definitely need to be working more closely together uh, to close that gap. One of the most common gaps is after discharge. It's somebody's notes not being passed from one service to another, the area that they're going into not being aware of if they've had previous mental health issues or are struggling in any way. And that's during a really big transition in that person's life as well. If you compare it to lots of data being done on leaving or, or going into the prison service and what that does to somebody's mental health, that's because you become institutionalized and you, you're used to behaving a certain way, you're used to your day being regimented. The word regimented comes from the armed forces, you know, it's, it's, it's very much the same. You're told where to be, when to be there, when to eat, when to report for your next duty, when to leave, when to go to sleep. Your day is pretty much given to you on a piece of paper and that's just how it's going to be so then to leave and to have the freedom but also the responsibility to actually have to take care of and administrate your own life in such a huge way and in such a different way to what you've been used to is huge so you're in this transitionary period which we already know are a breeding ground for for mental illness um, and then you plus onto that the fact that you've just left your support community, your friends and and your kind of family, if you like, the, the family that you've built around service are where they are and you're moving most likely unless you choose to just stay where you're well, and, and a few people do. They choose just to relocate to wherever they were based at the time with the belief that at least they'd be close to their friends and uh, the people that they've served with until they move in two years and then you're left in the place that you were at the time that you got out or when they're busy with their day jobs and busy with you know because armed forces life isn't nine to five it goes on way more than that if you're on exercise or if you're called away on tour and things like that you could be away for weeks months um, at a time you know so then you're faced with this kind of am I going to stay here and settle here or am I going to go back to the place where I grew up and settle where my you know my biological family are and all of that kind of thing either way it's a huge transition lots of stuff's going to change in your life we know that that can be a breeding ground for mental ill health and it's probably one of the most common gaps where people are falling through because everything that's happened to them whilst in service is not being communicated to the agencies outside of the wire that are there to pick them up and to make sure that they're they're kept safe are, are living well and then there's what happens if you're not living well? What happens if the job you had lined up doesn't work out or the accommodation that you had lined up falls through or you fall out with your family or you don't find it as easy to make friends within the civilian community as you thought you would? If any of these things happen, it's going to make a massive difference to your quality of life and how comfortable and how attached you feel to your new life, which again makes people miss the armed forces it makes them wonder if they've made the wrong decision or if you know and a lot of people it's not a choice they're either medically discharged or no longer fit for service for some reason or have reached the end of their career and are retired still at a relatively young age to have something that's been a massive building block of your life for so long taken away from you whether you choose it or whether it's something that's 
told to you is massive and we definitely need to do more work to close those gaps. One of the things that I do quite a lot is I go into camps and I talk to young soldiers. So we're talking about troops that are in training or recently joined their unit or under 20 years of age, still relatively new to the armed forces, still relatively new to the concept of looking after their own being and and mental health. When you're young, everything seems to be just okay anyway, by default. And then it's as the stresses of life and things get more and more, that's when things start to happen and the wheels fall off. I want to get to them at that stage and have the conversation with them then and explain that the thing that I said before about if there's, if there's more bad days than there are good days, reach out at that point. Don't wait until you get into crisis. That message might not resonate with them very much there in the moment, but I really hope that further down the line when life does get tough and struggles do come and they do go on tours and see things that you can't unsee, I hope they remember that message and pick up the phone to us when they get back and, and need somebody to talk to. Is there anything that you have in mind to change the way perhaps the the system's set up, the way the government funds, the way the military is organised? Yeah, there is. So we did um, a piece of work with uh, the UK government. So we linked in with our local MP, Stephen Morgan, um, who I think his role now is, is... yeah, shadow defence secretary or defence minister. So he's very much in that space within the sort of armed forces community, comes from a family background that served in the Navy, is really passionate about the subject of mental health. So he's been a really good advocate and and, and ally for us. And we took a case to uh, UK Parliament and had a debate around uh, veteran suicide. We're one of the few of the built up allied forces that haven't, as a rule, collected data on veteran suicide. If you look at America, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, um, France, they all are really good at keeping data on veteran suicide and understanding how suicide affects the veteran community. At the time, the UK wasn't collecting any data on veteran suicide. So it was really difficult to understand how that was affecting the veteran community in comparison to the civilian community. Unfortunately, what that did is it relied on us taking data on suicides and self-harm within service and then using that as the basis to make assumptions on the veteran community, which for a number of reasons is really not accurate at all. So the first one is around access to means um, and time and the ability to kind of be free to self-harm or, or take your own life. So if you think about life within service, very often you live alongside, if not in the same room, as people that um, you serve with. So your ability to make an attempt on your own life is actually limited by the fact that you're around other people most of the time. Also, you're busy. You're of a young age. We know that quite often it takes years for somebody to really be affected by the trauma that they've experienced at a younger age to the point where they're thinking about self-harm or suicide. The official numbers of self-harm incidents and suicide incidents within service, when looked at from the data that is held, it would state that the danger is slightly lower so that you're slightly less likely to self-harm or end your own life as a serving member of the armed forces community. Because there's no data on veterans, what quite often happened is that was used as a basis to say, well, then we can see that the veteran community must be less likely, which just isn't the case. Because again, we're talking about that clear line between one thing and another, where when your service comes to an end, you no longer have that 
community surrounding you. You no longer have the advantage of having people around you all hours of the day. You are more likely to have had time to think about the things that have happened in your career, the traumas that you've been exposed to. You are more likely to feel some kind of guilt or shame or wish you could have done more or worry about people that you've lost and have the time to do that, plus access to things like alcohol, drugs, uh, things that you'd have been more careful of in service because you know that they could end your career. You're now on the outside where these things are more prevalent. The the usage of them is is happening more and more within the, a certain demographic of the community, a certain age demographic of the community. You're now in a place where you're at more risk carrying traumas from service, which in itself, your exposure to trauma, as you'd expect within service, is much more than the average for a civilian in the same sort of age group or that you know hasn't experienced life in service. And you're on your own more. You've got access to means. Um, you're probably struggling quite a bit with the transition into the civilian world. What what has that done for you? What is, creates this kind of soup, this this dangerous concoction of of ingredients that potentially put you at more risk? And we knew this anecdotally because we were talking to people and they were telling us, I had a friend that took his own life in service. I had a friend that took his own life when he left. Quite a common one. I've lost more friends to suicide than I did to war. And that's a really hard pill to swallow that, you know, the majority of people that we talk to have lost more friends to suicide than they have to active campaigns in the British Armed Forces. Anecdotally, we knew that what the data was saying wasn't reflecting the truth of the situation. We worked with Stephen Morgan. We worked with a widow of a a veteran that had taken his own life. We took that to the House of Commons and we had a debate around the subject. I'd love to say, and just like that, things changed. They didn't. Over the course of the last few years, there has been a shift in understanding and trying to research and understand that veteran demographic more. And the data around veteran suicide is being collected by the UK government. So Johnny Mercer and his team within the Ministry of Veteran Affairs uh, came together and kind of are now collecting that data and we're starting to understand a little bit more. We've also done our own research on it. We did an impact of suicide report in 2019, I think, which showed that 50% of veterans uh, had thought about ending their own life. 25% of veterans had gone as far as to make an attempt on their own life already which is so one in four and one in two, which is significantly higher than the civilian counterparts on those two uh, statistics. We're in the process at the moment of just collecting the second round of that data. So we're rerunning the report to see what uh, comes out. We're hoping to get around a thousand people through that research, through that survey. We've had a quarter of that already and the numbers are coming through very similar to how they came through in 2019. So we're seeing that although quite a lot's changed in the space, actually those dangers and those worries, the impact and exposure to suicide that the community are feeling are still very much the same. It's a pity in one sense that there wasn't anything done previously, so you've got no data 
to compare to no, how it exactly, was yeah. and how it is now if there's any progression whether it's got worse over the years there's been very restricted set pieces of research done so things like monitoring Falklands veterans after coming home and kind of their exposure to suicide and self-harm and instances like that things like the first Gulf War taking a subset of the veterans from the first Gulf War and having a look to try and understand that so there has been smaller pieces of research that give us an indicator of where we are and whether or not the data that we're seeing come through now is reflective of kind of a status quo within the military space or whether it's getting better or getting worse. Our findings so far, just based on the data that we have, is that this is a fairly consistent issue and it has been for the last 20 years. This isn't new. And if you think about the armed forces particularly, you can kind of understand why that's the case because we went from sort of World War One and World War Two to kind of nothing really and then cold war worries in the falklands and then from that point onwards things have just been extremely kinetic so you know multiple tours of iraq dozens of tours of afghanistan and the surrounding areas got british troops dispersed in the africas in the the middle east these aren't areas that are known for being quiet and you know easy tours these are kinetic you know, regular exposure to trauma. To a degree, you expect that as somebody that joins the armed forces. You're not getting into it to kind of sit behind a desk and to be safe and, and you know, happy all the time. You understand that you're going to have to go and do things that, you know, are quite scary to a lot of people and you're going to be running towards the danger rather than running away from it. But that doesn't completely mitigate the exposure to trauma. That doesn't lessen the effects of watching a friend lose his life or watching a friend get shot or getting shot yourself or or being in an experience where your life was in real danger. It doesn't completely negate the effects of those exposures of trauma. So we still need to have a service in place that is committed to looking after people when they come home and looking at it long term using data as a tool to really drive funding into the areas that it's needed. I think the idea that veterans have been less likely to self-harm or end their own life has put an arbitrary limit on the amount of funding and the amount of attention that's being put into that area of, of research and support. Hopefully, with the information that the Office for Veteran Affairs are collecting, with the information that we're collecting, that other veterans groups are supporting with as well we're starting to paint a bit of a fresher picture and a bit of a realer picture of what the landscape for veterans is at the moment and if we can do that and we can continue to push um, on the powers that be to invest more money to invest more time to really understand what the veteran experience is and make sure that they're provisions for support not just around mental health but around social care housing, access to things like gambling addiction, substance abuse organisations, all of these things that we know essentially people chase artificial highs. If they've lived a kinetic lifestyle and you've basically been full of adrenaline for 20 years, if suddenly that goes away, you find arbitrary ways to chase that high again. And it does tend to be things like alcoholism, really kind of um, sort of chaotic social lives, gambling, addiction, and all those things that Whilst no one's ever going to sit there and say, I'm a gambling addict and it's the army's fault, there are a connection between A and B and we need to recognise that and actually hold the MOD to account and make sure that they're you know, fully invested, make sure the British government is fully invested in 
helping former armed forces members live a meaningful life. As an armed forces veteran, if you do 22 years and you joined at 18 years old, you're still retired at 40. It's an incredibly young age when you compare it to the national average to sort of say, right, okay, here's the first part of my life over. What do I do now? You know, you're technically pensioned out of the armed forces, but most people don't just give up work. They go and do phase two of their life, if you like, you know, move into a different job. But restarting your life at 40 is no easy task. And it's no wonder there are, you know, veterans within our communities that have struggled with that um, and could use all the support that we can give them. Thank you. Before we wrap up, first thing, can you share with me something you're most proud of? My children definitely are the thing I'm most proud of. I think that there's something happens when you have kids, which most people with kids will know is that they kind of, they become mini use, but different elements of your character. And I can see that in my children. So my daughter has the kind of the physics or the maths brain and the kind of really wanting to explore and understand things. If she doesn't know the answer to a question, then she'll go off and Google it and she'll kind of study it. And she just really wants to know everything. So she's quite data driven. It's fun to see that in her because I can kind of see it I know what I'm like. And I, when she gets frustrated by things, it's the same things that frustrate me. And then my son, who's very, very accident prone, and I essentially lived in A&E when I was a child. My head is too large for my body. It still is as an adult, but I've kind of grown into it. Imagine this head on a, on a five-year-old without the beard. That's how I looked. So I was always just kind of falling over because I was a bit top heavy. And my son is exactly the same now. Even in his pain, there's just still such a sense of pride in recognizing yourself in your children. So yeah, I'd say that's the thing I'm most proud of, my my kids and, and being a dad. If you could distill it down to one song or one piece of music, what would your favorite be? See, automatically, like the Queen and Meatloaf and Genesis and things like that really jump out at me. But I think... I have a bit of a rule. So I think you should be able to read the lyrics of a song as if it's a poem. You should be able to listen to the music of a song as if it's an orchestra. And you should be able to do both at the same time and it still be a really good song. So my favourite song is Starlings by Elbow. Because, yeah, if you listen to it without the words, it's just one of the most beautiful pieces of music. And just don't listen to it if you're sleepy because random trumpets burst in halfway through the song. And if you just read the lyrics on their own as a poem, they stand on their own as well. I would think about that and listen to music in a different way. So thank you. There's loads of good songs, isn't there? But actually, like, sometimes the good song, if you just read the lyric, the lyrics... They're really, really simple. So like, try and re- Red Hot Chili Peppers, amazing music. But if you listen to the lyric, just the lyrics, they're nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Whereas that is, it's a beautiful song in, in words and music. Food. What would be your favourite food? Oh, favourite. See, now this will be a hard one because I love food. Any food, all food. In fact, you know, dirty food, just food that's not good for you is the best food, I think. But if it was, what would your last meal be? I think it would be... A butternut squash risotto. I think that would be my go-to. I always find butternut squash too sweet. See, I've got a bit of a sweet tooth, so that's like uh, it, it's it's pudding, but for dinner, you know. So that's it's not really going with that. Yeah, two in one kind of thing. Yeah. And would you have some parmesan cheese on that at all? Or oh, I'd, I'd drench it in parmesan. Yeah, it would be all over it. Sounds like a good option. Excellent. And place. What would your favourite place be? My favourite place in the world is just stood by the sea almost anywhere. So stood looking out of the sea. I think it's as close as you'll get to kind of what astronauts must feel when they look at the Earth from space. Just this sense of 
there's fear and security in being so wholly insignificant as just a, a grain of sand on a beach and looking out into the sea and just understanding just how massive the world is and how small you are. But if I could be anywhere looking at the sea, I'd be in Bali looking at the sea. And if it was a book, film or video game, or indeed all three, what would it be? It wouldn't be the same for all three, but if it, if it was book, then it would be The Martian because it's a brilliant book. It's a good film, to be fair, as well, but the book is way better. If it was a film, it would be either The Green Mile or Shawshank Redemption. Do you know what? I don't really play video games, but I am addicted at the moment to Wordle. Do you play Wordle? I think I'm the only person that doesn't play Wordle, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I really like those sort of simple games. The good thing about Wordle is it's once a day and then it doesn't come back on until the next day. So you can't just sit and binge on it and just do one after the other after the other, which I find useful as I tend to work in a way where I like to take small breaks and set myself tasks or set myself like a 20 minute task and say, right, and then you can have five minutes to, to do something else. Um, so that's quite a nice little one to just pick up and go, right, yeah, done today's one. and I don't have to worry about it until tomorrow. And then finally... Tell me someone you most admire. Can I do two? One really quick one. So I'll, I'll do Elon Musk as like the one that everyone knows. He falls into that category of, if you listen to anyone that talks about working with him, he's very much, it's my way or the highway. And he's very sort of directional and tunnel focused. And I find quite often that other people have fed back to me that I'm very much the same. So I'm very sort of, this is where the train's going. You can kind of hold on or you can fall off, but this is where we're going. For me, Elon Musk is a good person that I can go, right, okay, well, if it worked for him and he's a, a billionaire, you know, living his best life, then maybe there's merit to being that way inclined. Uh, so he's almost, I use Elon Musk as a defense quite a lot as to why I am a certain way. But I would say the the person I most admire is, is my mum because she, just an incredible woman really, grew up in a horrible poverty uh, to parents who suffered with substance uh, misuse had just a, the most terrible childhood if it was written down point for point the the kind of traumas that she was exposed to as a child the list would go on forever and it would just get worse and worse after you know point after point so it wasn't a good life however she just never complains always can extract somehow sieve uh, a positive out of any negative situation and just gets up every day and just continues to go on and just has a you know for a, for a woman of a, a certain age has a, a incredible zest for life and a love for her grandkids and my kids I'd say yeah probably my mum be the person I admire most. Well look thank you SJ for your time and thank you again for the work and if anyone wants to donate how do they go about doing that? head to allcoolscience.org um, you'll find a donate button there and other ways that you can get involved as well if you're unable to donate as I say everything that we get in goes towards um, furthering our aims and supporting veterans that we support so um, it's all you know very much needed and very much appreciated and if there are any veterans or service personnel or family members that are listening to this and the things that we're talking about and kind of that experience of trauma and things is resonating with you you can register on the site and find me I'm, I'm a member on the site just as alongside everyone else so please do drop me a message and, and say hello and if there's anything that I can do to help or that all call signs can do to help we're here for it brilliant thank you SJ
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Until next time, remember, help people feel valued. Listen, don't just hear.